I'm going to be reading from Psalm 98. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sing roar, or let the sea roar, and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Thanks, Dave, for reading. Good morning. I'm glad to be with you this morning, um, sharing from Psalm 98. And I think what is clear to us off the bat from this passage is that this is a joyous passage. This is a song of worship to the Lord. Um, We just came out of a time of worship, and I think this passage almost continues that time. Um, This is a psalm that is written as a worship song to God. Now, when many of us think worship, when I start talking about worship, we start to think about what we just did. Um, You walked in this morning, Nick got up here, um, he read some scripture to start us off, and then we moved into a time where you stood up, there were words on the screen, you followed along, you sang, you worshiped God. Now, certainly, this is worship. Um, We see plenty examples of singing in scripture. We're told even here to sing a new song to the Lord. Um, But as a worship leader myself, I'm often balancing Jesus' command to worship the Father in both spirit and in truth. So this means that our worship is inspired by the Holy Spirit. (coughs) But we're also proclaiming truths about who God is. This means that the songs we sing should be pleasing to God because of the content, not the emotional response that the music or lyricism creates. Now, that's not what I'm going to talk about all day today. I could go down a huge rabbit hole of like what we should be singing and we could put songs and artists on the screen and be like, sing this, don't sing that. We're not going to do that this morning. But I want you to see in this psalm how you are worshiping God and where that is leading you. Because worship is much more than just singing, but it's also not anything less than singing. When we sing praises to God, our aim is to proclaim something about God, something that is good, something that is true. So that's the bigger picture. Um, But what I'm hoping that we can see this morning is how our worship of God is specifically shaped by Psalm 98. And I'm hopeful that this psalm will shape both your personal worship 
and your corporate worship when you come here and sing with other believers. So what we're going to look at specifically this morning are really three things in this psalm. What God has done, what our response to this is, and what God will do in the future. Would you pray with me as we get started? Father, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful for worship, for time to come together with other believers and proclaim truths about you and who you are. God, for many of us, these aren't new truths. Um, These aren't things that we're arguing with and debating and is this really true? Did God really save? For many of us, we've known these things, some for months, some for years, some for decades. But Lord, as much as we know your word, help us to be just as joyful in that knowledge. And God, I pray that that through your word this morning, you would convict our hearts to joyfully proclaim these truths. So God, use your word here in the 98th Psalm. Help us to truly grasp what worship is. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we'll begin in verses one through three. And like I said, these tell us what God has done in the past. He starts like this, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So this psalm of worship merely starts with the psalmist proclaiming back to God what he has done in the past. So what are those things? Well, I think there's two primary things we see in this passage of what God has done. The first is simply what the psalmist calls marvelous things. And he expounds on that and says specifically, working salvation for his people. There are many things we could praise God for. Hopefully, each of you can find something in your life that you are thankful for, that you can attribute directly to God. You can say, I didn't do this. This was purely God's grace working in my life. I'm, sh- I'm hopeful that many of you have a list of things that you are thankful for, that you attribute to God But God's work in salvation should be primarily what causes us to praise him. What is central to this passage is the message of the gospel. And if you've been in church, around church, specifically around Ogletown for any period of time, you've heard the story of the gospel, whether that's here or somewhere else. Um, But often when we share this message with others, we focus in on us. You might have been tempted in the past when you're sharing with someone or someone might have shared with you in such a way that pitches the gospel as a solution to the problems you're having. Someone is, you know, down on their luck, having a terrible time, horrible things have happened to them. It's tempting to present the gospel as, hey, this will turn your life around. Now, I don't disagree with the fact that if you apply what's in scripture and live as God instructs us to live, things in your life might improve, your marriage might get better if you just follow what God commands for you to do, but we are not to share the gospel as man-centered. So what I want to do now is 
share the gospel, share the entire story of the gospel, but I want you to focus in on what God has done. Because as you look at this passage, the psalmist is not praising God because he came to a realization of God's truth and turned around to him and God turned his life around. He he is praising God because God has worked in salvation. So the message of the gospel is this. God created the entire world. He is the good and loving creator and ruler of that world. Because he created it, he is entitled to rule over it. And in creation, he also created you and I. He created human beings. And his purpose in creating us was that so we would rule over the world that he created under his ultimate rule. So he created rules, laws for our good that we would follow in order to thrive and bring him glory. However, you and I pushed aside God as ruler. We rejected him as ruler and we decided we were going to live as our own little rulers of our own little kingdom that we have created. We said we don't need God's rules. We'll make up our own. We'll figure it out on the way. We've rejected him. So because God is just, he can't let us live in our rebellion forever. And the punishment for our rebellion, which we see listed as sin in scripture, our punishment for sin is death and judgment. However, because God is also all loving, he created a way to save us. And he did this by sending his son, Jesus. Jesus followed God's commands perfectly like we never could. And ultimately he died in order to take the punishment for sin that we deserved. And not only this, but Jesus rose again from the grave. He conquered sin and death and he reigns eternally with the Father in heaven and will come again. And by putting our faith in Christ, by believing in him and his work on the cross and repenting of our sin, we are saved from death and judgment and we live eternally with him. So notice, in this gospel message, which is what we're here for. That's the best news in the world. That's why we're singing. In this message, there is nothing in here that makes you worthy of praise. There was never a line where I said, and then the humans who were rebelling against God kind of figured it out, turned around, and God was like, no, I'm, I'm good with you now. You guys, you guys came around. No, what we see in this gospel story is God worked on our behalf There was no point in that story where we decided we wanted him to do that or we were were completely in rebellion against him and he sent Jesus despite our rebellion. The only thing we see is God in his faithfulness working out salvation for those whom he loves. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, it's really one big gospel story. Um, Paul lays out the gospel much longer than I just did and in much more detail. And in chapter 9, Paul is kind of wrestling um, in kind of hypothetical questions with um, the idea of God saving some and not others. So he's asking these questions, essentially asking, why are some people saved and some aren't? If God is really ruler over salvation, Why this person and not this person? He's asking these harder questions. And after wrestling with this um, for some time, Paul says this in Romans chapter nine, verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice 
on God's part. He's asking, is God unjust? Is this a justice issue? And he answers it, this rhetorical. He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What we see in this passage and in many other places in Scripture, in the praises of the psalmist in Psalm 98, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God alone who saves, and this is good news. This is worthy of singing because salvation is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on how well you keep the rules, how often you read your Bible, how many minutes in prayer you spent this week. Salvation depends on the loving grace of God. So that's the first thing that we see in Psalm 98 about what God has done. He has worked salvation for his people, when they didn't want it at all. This is, this is worthy of praising. But this was not done behind closed doors. Um, this was not just written in a book somewhere and we're supposed to just read it and say that looks really good and move on with our lives. No, God, as we see here, has also revealed his righteousness in sight of the nations. We see this in verse two. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And this is where our theology of worship starts to expand a little bit more. Like I said, worship is not anything less than singing here on a Sunday morning. That's worship. But it's also much more than singing for a half hour once a week. You cannot reveal the steadfast love of the Lord to all nations if the only time you proclaim the excellencies of God is while you're here reading off a screen. Now, yes, it's true. Romans 1 tells us that God is revealed in creation. Um, If you've been around church for long enough, you've probably heard this thrown around that, that the creation reveals that there is a God, that people are without excuse um, because they can look at creation and know that there is something more. So God is, God as creator is made known through his creation But God as Savior is made known through the proclamation of the gospel through his people. This is how God designed this to work. So in this passage, we can start to build out a theology of evangelism, a theology of missions. We are commanded to worship and we see that our worship must contain an external proclamation of the excellencies of God, of what he has done. And that proclamation extends outside of this building. It extends across the street. It extends across the hall from where you live. It extends across the world to all nations. John Piper's book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, um, he, he starts off the book with this. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions only exist because worship does not. So our goal is for all nations to sing the praises of God. And this isn't to like check people off the list. This isn't like I saved more people than you. This is God is worthy of worship and there are people who aren't worshiping him and God is worthy of that. So let's go proclaim the gospel so that more people are worshiping God because he deserves it. Our goal in evangelism and global missions is the universal worship of the God who saves. 
And we cannot expect to joyfully proclaim a message that does not in turn give us joy. So that's why when we sing songs here on Sunday, if you really read through the words, we're not saying anything profound. Um, They are certainly profound truths, but they are normal truths. They are God is sovereign in salvation. He works in salvation. Um, This morning in the first service, we sang the song, Is He Worthy? Um, We've sang it in here before, but it's it's like back and forth questions. Like, does the Father truly love us? He does. Like, that's such a simple thing. No one is, is the, does the Father truly love us? And we're like, no, I think the Bible doesn't say that. No, we know scripture says that, but we sing it over and over again because it's amazing that the Father truly loves us. We know that in our heads, but are we proclaiming that joyfully? So we've looked at what God has done in the past. He's not only worked out salvation for his people, but he's revealed that to all nations. And now as we look at verses four through six, we'll see what our response to this is. The response is this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Bring, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So now that we've seen what God has done, this is our response. This response of joyful singing comes out of a heart that has remembered the steadfast love of the Lord. As we mentioned before, the response of all people when they hear the good news is joyous praise. Singing to the Lord, sounding trumpets, making a joyful noise. And we actually get a really good example of this because um, you might read this and be like, well, that sounds good. Like in theory, I want to do that. What does this actually look like? We get a good example of this at the very end of the book of Luke. If you're familiar with the gospels, um, at the end of Luke, we have already read about the life and teaching of Jesus. Um, his death on the cross has already occurred. Um, he's already been raised from the dead. And what we see at the very end of the book of Luke is the point where he's risen again and he's appeared to his disciples. And in these closing verses, Jesus is ascending into heaven and we see the reaction that the disciples have when he's leaving them. So it says this, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So we have a few things in this passage. We have first a clear commission from Jesus to his disciples, one that I believe still rings true for modern-day disciples of Jesus. 
We see that Jesus' intention in dying was so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed once again to all nations. So Jesus proclaimed to the disciples that as he was leaving earth, he was commissioning them, he was empowering them to proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. And in verse 52, we see what their response is. They worshiped him. They responded with joyous praise. They worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God. And this commission, um, it's, it's listed in different gospels in different places, but this commission is what started the global movement of Christianity. You can read through the book of Acts and this all kicked it off. It's all rooted in joyfully praising God for what he has done and declaring that to all nations. The gospel produces joy and you cannot joyfully proclaim a message that you don't cherish yourself. So, if you're kind of thinking through your day-to-day this morning and man, do I proclaim the gospel joyfully everywhere I go. If you're thinking through, man, do I do this in the places I am on a daily basis? And you're realizing, I don't know if I do. I think you should start by asking yourself, do I really cherish this message? The solution to not proclaiming the gospel joyfully isn't like, well, just go do it. Because like I've said, you cannot joyfully proclaim a message that you do not cherish. So I think the action step for you this morning is cherish the gospel. Read it. Think through. Pray through what God has done for you and let that drive you to proclamation. Because when you truly grasp the infinite worth of Christ, you cannot help but react with joyful proclamation of that message to the entire world. So we've seen what God has done. We've looked at our response to this. And at the end of this psalm, we look at what God will do in the future. It says this in verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it and the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So our joyous praise, our proclamation of who God is, is rooted in the promise that God will come to judge the earth. Psalmist says, he will judge the world with righteousness and all the peoples with equity. Now this may not seem immediately like good news worthy of proclaiming to us. Um, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're probably not leading with, hey, God's going to come judge the earth. Um, That's probably not what we're going to start with. But once we see the significance and importance of the judgment of God, um, we cannot help but rejoice in it. So one of my favorite things to do is to answer unknown phone calls. Um, Many of you probably ignore them. Um, I think you're missing out on a great time. Um, If I see an unknown phone call, my day's made. My goal in answering that unknown phone call, because it's probably a scammer, is to keep them on the phone for as long as possible. So this is kind of my little way of 
bringing justice to the world, making the world a fairer place. The longer I can keep that guy on the phone, um, the more like I'm serving my neighbors who are around me. I'll give them nonsense credit card numbers. Um, I'll pretend the phone is breaking up or walk out into like traffic so it's really loud and it's hard for them to hear me. Um, anything I can do to keep that person on the phone for as long as possible, I'm going to do. So a few years ago, I got an email from someone um, that was pretending to be my boss. I'm not really sure what was going on. Here's a copy of the email. This guy emailed me from my email, which didn't really make sense, and said, hello, Larry. I don't know who Larry was. I don't know if it was Larry LaRaga. They were like kind of going through the Ogletown stuff, so maybe he thought I was Larry. I, I have no idea. He said, hello, Larry. I need you to run a quick task for me. Let me know if you are unoccupied. He said, P.S., I'm busy at the moment. Can't talk, um, but I'll look out for your reply. Thanks. Sincerely, Nathan Walters, pastor, Ogletown Baptist Church. Now, I was on staff with Ogletown. I've never been a pastor here. Um, and like I said, this email is listed as from me to me, but to Larry, but from me. So this was like a gold mine for me. I was like, this guy's not very smart. I'm going to be able to keep him going for a long time. So I responded to him. I said, Larry, that sounds awesome. I'm glad to do whatever you need. What do you need? And he, it's a little small, but I'll read it for you. Um, he said, okay, thank you. I need you to get two gift cards for $500 to Walmart. Um, I'll reimburse you when I get back. Don't worry about it. Get the cards. Send me a picture. How soon can you get it done? I said, well, I can probably get it done tomorrow. Um, can I just give them to you in person when I see you tomorrow night? He said, no, I need them today. He's getting a little like agitated at this point. He said, I need them today. If it was tomorrow, I could get it done myself. Can you do it ASAP? I say, okay, um, I'm just going to have to fill out this expense authorization report. You know this is standard practice, Larry. Like, like, you should know this. Send me over the form and you get a chance. So Larry and I went back and forth after this for a while. Um, this was a couple days where I'm saying, I need you to send me the authorization form. He's saying, just do it. I'll reimburse you. Um, so he's getting upset. He's demanding I make this personal purchase of these gift cards and he'd reimburse me. I'm saying, Larry, I just don't have enough money. You're going to have to send me that expense authorization form. And after a few days, he sends me back this. Um, <clears throat> he wrote on a piece of paper, Walmart gift cards, $1,000, the date, and signed it with my name. And this was like, this was great for me. This was an awesome moment. I was like, I got this guy to send me a picture of something he's writing at his little desk wherever he is. And I, I looked at this and I said, Larry, I need it signed by you, not me. What are you doing? Like, you're not me. You're Larry. I'm calling you Larry. But I told him, no worries. I already got the gift cards. Um, would you like me to send you a picture of them? And he said, yes, please send over the picture. So I sent him back this. Um, <laughs> And this is about where Larry stopped responding to me. I knew my work here was done. We were three days in of communicating back and forth. I felt very justified in my actions. I've made the world a better place by keeping Larry on his computer for a couple more days where he couldn't scam someone else. Now, part of me doing this was purely out of entertainment. It was, a, it was an opportunity to keep someone going for a while. Um, but part of it was seeking justice. Um, this is a funny story. But people like this ruin the lives of people. You guys might know someone who, man, their life was torn apart by a scammer like this, especially those who are more vulnerable. So I figured every minute of Larry's time that I could occupy was one less minute he could spend scamming someone else. Now, 
universally, we all want people like this to come under the law. There's probably not a person in here who's like, yeah, this guy, he's pretty smart. He should keep doing what he's doing. We, we all want these people punished in some way. We want them to pay back what they've stolen from other people. We want them thrown in jail or whatever it takes so that they can't make another phony phone call or send another um, spam email again. So if this man was caught in this scam, arrested, had to go stand before a judge, what should that judge do? Imagine there's a courtroom, Larry's up there with the judge, every single one of his victims is in that courtroom. These are people who have lost uh, maybe $1,000 of Walmart gift cards, but maybe tens of thousands of dollars they've lost to this scam. Imagine the judge says to my friend Larry, he says, Larry, you know what? Who am I to judge? You know, I, I can't do that. Um, don't worry about paying any of that back. Why don't you just get out of here? Keep doing what you're doing. You're free to go. Everyone in that courtroom and everyone following this case would be outraged. And they wouldn't be outraged at Larry. They've already been outraged at Larry. They'd be outraged at that judge. And why? Because justice was not served. A good and loving God has to pass judgment on evil in order to be good and loving. In God's courtroom, no one slips under the rug. No scam, no murder, no sexual abuse, no lying, no adultery, no unjust discrimination. Nothing slips through God's fingers. Our sin, our rebellion against his law can't go on forever, as we've mentioned. The punishment for sin is death and judgment. So we're back to how is this joyful proclamation? I, I understand how it's like needs to be done, but it's still not joyful, is it? Well, this is joyful because of the person and work of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that in his grace, God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place to take the punishment that we deserve. So in this courtroom, when we're standing before God, the judge, to give an account for our entire life, he doesn't just turn a blind eye to our sin and tell us we're good. That's not what grace is. Grace isn't an ignoring of sin. No, he looks upon the perfect life of Christ and places his punishment on Christ on our behalf. And we are covered by Christ. Perfect justice is given out, but it falls on Christ instead of us for those who believe. Paul describes this well in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So notice how this comes back around. This is something to rejoice about. This isn't just a truth to accept. This is ultimate truth to rejoice in, which means proclaiming in. So the question for you this morning is, are you rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God? Often in church, the word <clears throat> missions um, promotes all kinds of discussion. We start talking about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and the idea of missions, and we ask, what is it? Are we doing it correctly? We talk about methods. Um, we ask, well, why should, 
I have to go somewhere else when my neighbor's right here and needs the gospel. Um, we say, well, that's not really for me. I'm comfortable here. Someone else will take care of that. But w- what I want to submit to you this morning is that missions is much less complicated than we make it out to be. As we've seen in the 98th Psalm, God's saving work causes us to go out and proclaim the message of the gospel joyfully. And Jesus commissions, commands his disciples to take the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. So what global missions is, is merely taking this message to nations other than our own which involves the work of crossing cultures for the sake of the gospel. So what missions is, is really strategy that comes about given the desire we should all have to see the gospel proclaimed to all people. And the conclusion of this is that missions is not optional for any believer. You might have the view that this is some optional extreme thing that those people will take care of and we'll hear from them once a year and see how they're doing but all of us are commanded to ensure that the gospel is proclaimed through all the earth. I attended a conference called Cross Conference back in college. This was a missions conference, and the main drive of that conference that has stuck with me ever since was this idea that every Christian has three options when it comes to missions. The first option is to go. This means uprooting your entire life, uprooting your family, moving intentionally to another culture for the sake of the gospel. This can be full-time with a mission board. Um, This can be, hey, I'm going to get a job over here for this purpose. Um, This means learning a new language, a new culture, um, building a life in an unfamiliar place for the sake of planting churches among those who are unreached. This is option one, to go. Option two was to send. And this isn't a passive role in missions. This is a very active one. Active in praying for those who are going. Active in living sacrificially to financially support those who are going. Active in discipling other believers and mobilizing them to go. Active in sharing the gospel in your own community in order to make disciples. And the third option that was given at this conference was simply disobedience. There really, there isn't a third option. The options are to go, to send, or to disobey. You're either going with joy, you're sending with joy, or you're actively disobeying the commission that Jesus has given to all of his disciples. So I'm encouraged by the fruit that has come out of our church in terms of missions. We have missionaries in the field that we support Um, that have uprooted their lives for the sake of the gospel, um, have learned a new language, learned a new culture, and are planting churches in hard places. But as I look out and consider the size of this body here at Ogletown, between this service and the service before, I can't help but pray that God would raise up more and more laborers to go out into the world. Our capacity to send is so great, but we need more people to send. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. So I would encourage you 
Pray along with Jesus here. This is a command for Jesus. What he's saying to his disciples is to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I think we ought to be praying that same prayer today. Pray that he would raise up missionaries from Ogletown Baptist Church that would uproot their lives, go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel that has saved them. And I think what often happens when we genuinely pray this prayer, if you dwelt on this for like a couple weeks of praying through this, Lord, raise up laborers, raise up laborers, I think oftentimes we become the answers to our own prayer. If you're convicted that there is a need to send out more laborers, your life is gonna be shaped in such a way that you're either going yourself or you're actively sending There's no way to consistently pray through this prayer and not have your life shape. So this is, I think, almost a little loophole in our prayers here. I think these prayers are effective. If we ask God to raise up laborers, he will, but he might just use you. Um, It's a dangerous prayer to pray in many ways. So I think if you're praying through this, be willing. Be willing to let God use you. You can't just pray this for other people and say, I'm off the hook. God, raise up laborers somewhere else. He's calling all of us to be involved in this. And this is the beauty of our faith, that it's all of us. It's not just the pastoral staff here at Ogletown taking care of all this stuff so you guys can go about your own days. This is all of us. All of us are called to either go or send to be active in proclaiming this worship song that we just read, proclaiming the marvelous things that God has done and revealing those marvelous things joyfully to the nations. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for, man, God, how it convicts us, how it causes us to to evaluate our lives and see, man, am I joyful? in you. God, it's so easy to forget the works that you have done. That's why we proclaim them on a weekly basis here. That's why we say the same truths over and over again, because they remain true and they remain marvelous and amazing and sometimes unbelievable. God, sometimes there are weeks where we doubt your love, where we don't feel your love where we might not even think that you have saved us. We might be questioning that. But Lord, as we continue to proclaim these truths, as we proclaim them in song even now, God, root them in our hearts. Lord, convict us, shape us, remind us daily of the truth of the gospel, that we were wandering from you, we were running away from you, and you worked salvation in our lives. And God, as that becomes real to us, help us to take joy in that and help us to joyfully proclaim that message to the ends of the earth. We pray this in your son's name, amen.